Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and Happy New Year! My guest this week is Philip Iskov, a writer and producer juggling some very interesting projects at the moment. He's also the co-creator of Sleepy Hollow, which returns for its fourth season this Friday at 9pm on Fox. Phil picked Curtis Hansen's Wonder Boys the director's unlikely follow-up to his 1997 breakout L.A. Confidential, another adaptation of a tricky novel, this time by Michael Chabon, but radically different in almost every other way. Wonder Boys is a modest study of a middle-aged author in crisis, with Michael Douglas's Grady Tripp's entire world spiraling into chaos over one wintry weekend in academia. It's now remembered as the movie that won Bob Dylan an Oscar, but nearly 17 years after its kind of shameful release, there's plenty of stuff to rediscover if you're willing to look, or if you're looking for the first time. There's plenty of stuff to discover. I'm delighted to be able to kick off 2017 with this one. Please enjoy. This is someone else's movie. I think that it never got the love that I think it kind of deserved. Um, I mean, I guess there's a lot of things about it that I love, but um, I remember when it came out uh, and I was surprised that Curtis Hansen had chosen this as the follow-up to L.A. Confidential. Yeah, it didn't really seem to step in step with his filmography either. Not at all. Yeah. I mean, and then he followed that up with 8 Mile, which is even more of a step in, in a totally different direction. Uh, yeah, I think I just sort of... Um, I believe that it came... Yes, it certainly came out after uh, I read Cavalier and Clay, mm-hmm. the Michael Chabon book, um, which still is probably my favorite book. Um, and... Uh, I hadn't read Wonder Boys and I went to see it and, and I think that it just sort of spoke to me on um, as a writer anything uh, any movies that romanticize writing sure, <laughs> is going to connect with me on some level um, but it didn't feel elitist I think that there are a lot of movies about writing there are a lot of you know books about writing there's lots of art about writing sure. Um but they can be very um, navel-gazing, and they can kind of climb up their own ass if they're not careful, um, and they can make it seem as though they're changing the world, with, which isn't the case. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I think, kind of what I loved about this movie. It also feels, having rewatched it again yesterday, it feels like a warm, worn-out book. Like, it feels like... It, you know, browning pages and, 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 you know, folded corners. It feels like some old paperback that you, like, crawl into bed with. Even just, like, the, the, the color scheme of it, it's all browns, and it's all, like, everyone's wearing cozy clothes, and it's, like, raining, and it feels lived in, snowing. Like, it, it just, it feels, like, um, autumnal. You know what I mean? It just has yeah, all yeah. these qualities to it that make it very inviting. Um and you just want to be hanging out with these people. Like, it, it is kind of a hangout movie in a lot of ways, it, it too. Really, yeah, it really is. It's much looser than I remembered. Yeah. Because it is, a, like, it has a farce structure, but it plays sure. out in... I think it was Ebert who said that it plays out slowed down. It's, yes. a, it's a calm farce. Yes. Which is, is a, which is indicative of the, of the novel, which is quite meandering. <laughs> um, and the perspective of Grady Tripp, who is... Yes, a high, yeah, you know, not, writer who can't stop writing. <laughs> yeah, he's not yeah. fully connected to his world yes. except to his keyboard. Mm-hmm. And so everything that happens is happening around him rather than to him. Absolutely. And he's also, um, there's a line in it that sort of in a lot of ways encapsulates the movie. It's near the end when, um, after Katie Holmes attempts to read his book and she says, um, you tell our class that writers make choices and it didn't seem like you made any at all. Um, and that really sort of sums up the movie to me in a lot of ways. That idea of we all make choices, right? And if you don't make choices, you take the risk of treading water and and not moving forward and not doing anything. And that's what, what Grady is trapped in, which is this idea of a book that never ends because he just can't find the ending. Yeah. And, and because he doesn't want to make the choices that will actually bring closure and and. and consequences or movement forward or whatever the case might be um which is reflected in his immediate life that weekend as he's incapable of responding to his wife leaving him or his girlfriend's pregnancy or indeed anything else that's happening it it is 
Michael Douglas in 2000 was not an actor associated with stasis. No. And that makes it really interesting as well. I agree. It is, it, it's, it's without a doubt one of my favorite Michael Douglas performances um, because it doesn't feel like a Michael Douglas performance. And I, I like Michael Douglas. Mm-hmm. I, I think that um, uh, War of the Roses is one of my favorite comedies ever. Uh, I, I think that he, no one plays a dick better than he does. So for him to play this sort of... Um, almost a kind of Robin Williamsy kind of character is really not his bag. Um, And quite frankly, one of the reasons the movie probably wasn't very successful was that it was Michael Douglas playing against type. Um, Paramount didn't really give it its due. It opened at the end of February in 2000. Yeah. uh, with a with a photograph poster that was basically just Michael Douglas with <laughs> with snow near him. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And it says, yeah. "Hey, yeah. come see Wonder Boys." Yeah, from the Oscar-winning yeah. screenwriter of *L.A. Confidential*. Yeah. Those things line up. Yeah, they don't. It's I, and I think one critic said that the poster made him look like Elmer Fudd. Oh. And I think that on some level it kind of did. And he had these glasses the on the tip scarf, of his nose right. and the scarf, and he looked all like he looked like a Robin Williams character. Uh, you know, I, they just, I think that it's also interesting too to, to watch the movie, you know, before Tony McGuire became Spider-Man, before Robert Downey Jr. became Tony yeah. Stark. It is kind um, of amazing that uh, this film has Rachel from Batman Begins, uh, Tony Stark, Peter Parker, and Hank Pym. Yep. Uh, all, yeah. And Tristan McDormand, who was in Transformers right, now. All just hanging out. Yeah. They're all just, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing to watch. It's also just really, um, it's just really likable and lovable. Like, uh, even when the characters do things, and it does dip its toe into some pretty dark waters at times, yeah. um, you get the impression that they're hinting at James potentially trying to kill himself that oh, night I think outside. That's pretty much established, yeah. And, and it's, uh, you know, they don't hit you over the head with it, but uh, it's certainly alluded to. Yeah. Um, I think it's as fuzzy as Grady's perception of it would be. Like yes. Everything is just a little <laughs> yes. loose and out of focus, yeah. and things can be interpreted in different ways. Yes. I love that scene though of them outside her outside the house. The snow, like the snowflakes, look gigantic in this movie. I yeah. love how just the snow is just so um, I don't know, like inviting in a weird way. Uh, and that beautiful scene where they're talking about, you know, that's what heaven looks like, and it's and the the, the greenhouse. There's just also something very, and I've I think that I've part of this also stems from I was developing this project this year that was um, uh, basically a, a cop show with no technology for all intents and purposes, not to get into it, but okay. um, it was just sort of, and, and I, I long for those days as a writer when we didn't have technology. And when I see movies like this, like no one has a cell phone really yeah. in this movie. There's a lot uh, of payphone action in this. There's film. a lot of payphone. Um, you see a computer once at the very end. Uh, it's mostly typewriters. Yeah. Uh, it feels just very vintagey. Um, and I love it. It just, it makes it so much more, um, it forces the characters to talk to each other, to engage in things. I think the technology has made, um, it makes, uh, unfortunately, our characters very passive. It doesn't make them particularly active. And that's a bummer. I mean, even just at the end, when uh, they're trying to figure out where he lives, and Katie Holmes looks in a phone book, yeah. and you're just like, oh, that's so quaint. Yeah, But that's the stuff that, I don't know, I, not to be, like, nostalgic, but um, it is kind of a nostalgic movie. Uh, it feels like um, what we all wish the collegiate experience was like. Sure. You know what I mean? That I think Roger Ebert actually said it interestingly when he reviewed the film about how um, it, it feels like the faculty feel in colleges. That idea of kids come and go, but the faculty lives there. Yeah. You know what I mean? They have a house on campus. Like, it's it's all very um, familial in a weird way, um, yeah, which I, I also really love that. And they've built this bulwark of their own self-importance around yeah. themselves, where yes. that faculty party, you know, just this whole word fest thing is... Mm-hmm. It would be insufferable, I think, yes. to just wander in as a civilian. Yes. You have to be steeped in that culture to mm-hmm. even care at all. Yeah. Uh, that Rip Torn is there being jerk, you know, just so ludicrously big and self-absorbed, but also kind of fun to be around. Like, he's enjoying yeah. that, that. And that's where the performers become important, I think, yeah. too. Richard Thomas is... I mean, you know, like he's an in, an inherently dull actor. If you give him the wrong material, yes, yes, you need to make 
a, you need to make use of his dullness, which this yes. film does. Where yes. oh, embracing yeah. it, yeah. He's he's obsessed with a jacket. Of course, she'd stray. Yeah. Like there's yeah. all this stuff going yes. on. There's also, um, you know, Michael Chabon has a, a, a ability to sort of metatextually fold pop culture into itself a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, in all of his books, you find that he finds a way to sort of not just romanticize the things that he feels make sense within the construct of the of whatever that piece is, but um, you know you've got you've got Marilyn's jacket, you've got this sort of iconography that exists within all of his books, but it's done in a way that doesn't he doesn't shine a big bright light on it. It just sort of exists. This you know Prince McDormand's husband has you know Marilyn Monroe's jacket uh, and is obsessed with the marriage of Joe DiMaggio and, and, and Marilyn Monroe you've got James Lear's obsession with all of these old movies you know the Douglas Cirque movies yeah, of he's that, carried of that on the wind around on VHS in his bag. <laughs> right exactly yeah. uh, which is just it's it is uh, it's really interesting I think that to as someone who tries to do that in my writing it's tricky you know what I mean I think that I probably veer much closer to the the Joss Whedon camp of, of how I deal with pop culture in okay. terms of wrapping my arms around it and having fun with it and, and, and basically looking at the audience and being like, wasn't that thing great? Don't we both love that thing? Chabin is much more <laughs> literary about it and is yeah. far more subtle about it and does it in a way that is, uh, that is a lot more um, uh, intellectual, I guess, is, is one sure. way of looking at it. Well, certainly in Wonder Boys, the idea that... that Thomas's character is constructing a thesis on the last American marriage. <laughs> yeah. He's not wrong. Like that's a really yeah, interesting true. book if a yeah, good yeah. writer writes it. Sure. There's there is something in there that makes me think that it's not just a thing that is slapped onto another thing mm-hmm. for resonance. Yes. But at the same time, it's also the kind of thing where characters within the film and in the audience can people can simply look at it and go, that sounds kind of obvious and dumb (laughs) you'd have to be really smart to make that work so it sounds pretentious but also potentially yeah good even just the titles of the books of which we never get to read obviously but like the arsonist daughter sounds like a great book yeah don't know what the hell it's about but like it sounds like an important book yeah yeah. it sounds like a book that would win an award yes um you know and 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 james's uh the love parade the love parade don't know what that's about but it sounds interesting (laughs) and it sounds like a title that a 19 or 20 year old would write a book about yeah as Um, opposed to so many other films that just come up with these weird connections or you know, slap two words together that sound interesting yeah. or as some, oh, I wish I could remember who said it. It's such a great observation, but you know, Passengers is the movie that Andy and April would go see in Parks and Recreation yes. and make fun of. Yes. <laughs> yes. Which, and by the way, I've been, I just ironically, uh, I've been rewatching Parks and Rec recently. Uh, it's the best. It really It is. just makes me, I just, I basically cried every episode. It's oh. just so beautifully, I mean, Right now, the West Wing and Parks and Rec, for obvious reasons, are are my everything. Sure. I'm holding on to them desperately with the positivity <laughs> and hope that, that that politics can survive. Yes, they're movies about people who work together to do good things. To do good things for people who don't uh, appreciate them. <laughs> exactly, um, but yes, there there is something very um, uh, inviting and believable about Wonder Boys and what what Chabin does with that world. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's also something that I found interesting in, in rewatching it too was. Um, its depiction of depression and how people deal with depression. Um, you know, Grady obviously smokes and drinks and and writes a never-ending novel. Yeah. Um, James is is obviously dealing with, you know, he has his movies and, and he has his own writing that he's sort of dealing with, but maybe not as successfully. Um, and then obviously Crabtree, is, it's sex and it's, you know, to a certain extent drugs as well. Yes. Um, and it, it's just sort of a, it, it doesn't, and again, this might be the reason why the movie never really connected with people, but, um, you know, it never really stakes a claim on things. It's, as you mentioned, it's very fuzzy. It yeah. feels like Grady's, you know, mind. Um, and because of that, it sort of dances around things and it circles things and it makes observations about things and then it kind of flits off into another direction. Um, sort of like the wandering mind of someone who is is either <laughs> intoxicated or high or, or uh, you know, just bouncing around. It, it pinballs a lot, which I think yeah. um, might also be a reason why it never really connected. But. Yeah. When when Paramount reissued it the following November, I think it was. Well, the, the November of the same year. Yeah, yeah. For the for the Oscar consideration yeah. run, which, which doesn't happen anymore. No. And 
was really rare. Yeah, it was rare and it was laudable. It felt like yeah. it didn't feel like a contractual obligation, which it mm-hmm. almost certainly was. Somebody else saying, "Hey, come on, put it yeah. back. Let's. I want. I yeah. want this." Uh, I don't know who it was, whether it was Rudin. Hanson or Douglas or just Rudin. Yeah, yeah. probably Rudin. Probably Rudin. Uh, <laughs> we've met a couple of times. I wouldn't put it past. Yeah, that. no. I didn't. Um, but uh, the the sense that you were trying to, and again, this was at a point where I don't think it was out on tape yet or DVD. I don't think it had been oh, released wasn't. before the reissue. But it was an attempt to make people notice. Yeah. Um, to, you know, to call back to an era where, like, again, Bush had just been elected. I can't explain this to people who weren't there. This was a time when nothing good was happening. Like, everybody was yeah. just depressed. The yeah. Supreme Court had just given... Yeah. Or no, they hadn't even stopped the recount yet. That's That was happening. It was That's like the middle of November. This movie came out, and yeah. this little film burps out. And yeah. I can see how, if you were of a particular conservative bent, you might think that it's everything that's wrong with America. Because it's about pot smoking, yeah. it's about the gays, and it's about, yeah. you know, they shoot a dog, and there's a transvestite. And <laughs> all of it now yeah. seems... Quaint. Quaint, and, <laughs> and yeah, the film... I, I would love to see it play with the contemporary audience, just yeah. to see how they would respond to the way the film treats all this stuff. Because I was watching and thinking, oh, like literally everything yeah. in here could be screamed at as problematic by someone who didn't watch yeah. the movie and just saw Quite pictures. Quite progressive, yeah. It yeah. Is. yeah, and it's trying. Like, it's trying yeah. to be inclusive, it's trying to be understanding... Mm-hmm. It doesn't fully define like the the running thing about Crabtree is that he'll fuck anything, mm. but that he's probably gay, but he won't say so. Like there's even a line where Douglas yeah. refuses to, or Grady refuses to yeah. quantify him, and yeah. then whatever James is is also up for grabs. Yeah. Except that Crabtree knows. Right. So I mean that that is a that's a a relatively it's a reoccurring thing in Chabin's books. Mm-hmm. Um, the sexual confusion. The sexual confusion, which I, I, if, I, don't, I don't want to speak at a term, but I'm pretty sure was something that Chabin himself was dealing with as well. Uh, Mysteries of Pittsburgh, uh, his first novel, uh, was uh, very much about that. Um, and him sort of coming to... He, I mean, he's pretty openly bisexual and, and uh, talks about that sort of sexual fluidity, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also comes into play in Cavalier and Clay as well, um, with uh, Sam Clay being being gay right. um yeah it, it it's it's interesting because uh it's not like chabin and, and in turn wonder boys doesn't really uh care that there are people that are gay like that and, and by that i mean it's just like they're people and they're gay and let's move on with our lives and yeah. who really cares or they're part of the story and here they are yeah exactly that's just this is just a trait that they have and and chabin doesn't you know doesn't try to um get on a soapbox about it in any real way, which I think is interesting. I think that that's the way any trait of a character should be for all intents and purposes. Yeah. yeah. So I think there is something interesting. There's actually a shot in it that I never noticed until I watched it again yesterday. Um, it's, it's in the, the sort of the, the tail end of the movie when um, James and uh, Robert Downey Jr. have sex and the next morning, uh, Trip uh, comes. Grady knocks on the door, opens the door, and uh, Robert Downey Jr. says to James, "This is good." He points to his book. It's like, yeah, it's pretty good. And he leaves. And uh, he, uh, Robert Downey Jr. turns to Michael Douglas and says, "I'm going to publish this." Yeah. And there is a look of, quite frankly, jealousy that crosses Michael Douglas's face. It's a moment of, um, there is so much going on in that reaction shot, and it and and it's a testament to Michael Douglas's abilities as an actor that he can do all those things and then go right into a joke and say, oh yeah, it's been a long time since someone wrote a really good book in jail. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that it's, it's, it's a beautiful moment where you sort of see a man that, that feels his mortality, that feels like, I'm, I'm, am I not relevant anymore? He wants this younger guy now. Um, is, that, is he a better writer than me? Uh, have I lost it? Am, am I, you know, all that sort of stuff. And it's all in five seconds of screen time yeah it's pretty impressive and it also bolsters the idea of Grady as a writer because he's open to the world yes. and feeling everything in a way that he doesn't usually in the film like yeah. he, we don't see him take much in he's no. he's not the observer of the film even though he's narrating it and we are effectively seeing his version of events yeah he's the guy who is stumbling through yeah. um, you know he's Elliot Gould in The Long Goodbye he's mm-hmm. paying attention but he doesn't show it mm-hmm. he's just sort of this passive observer sort yeah, of, yeah he's being pulled through all yeah. these events yeah. right up until uh, whatever happens happens yes and then he rides yeah. that yeah he seems very um, 
he's pretty reactive. Yeah. He doesn't actually move the story. This story kind of, as you said, pulls him through it mm-hmm. um, reluctantly, which again is part of sort of this, he doesn't want to make choices and the, and the movie and the story is forcing him to do so, um, which I think is, is really interesting too. Um, it's also, um, and I don't know if you knew this or not, but uh, so Chabon was writing a book at the time Yes, and it's called Fountain City, I believe. Right. And this was based on his relationship with his writing teacher. With his writing teacher, and he was writing Fountain City with no end in sight. It was, it was just like Grady Tripp's book, um, and he basically just stopped and wrote this book amidst that sort of writing block problems that he was at that sort of maelstrom of of, uh, of creative difficulties, and. Uh, in, in its own way, sort of like how Barton Fink was written in the when they hit uh, when the Coens hit Writer's Block in Miller's Crossing, yeah, yeah. Um, and they didn't know how to end it, and they they wrote this thing about Writer's Block, and it's one of the best movies. And I just think there's something very interesting about um, writing to get out of Writer's Block. You know what I mean? To just turn the page, move on to something else, jump into a different sandbox, see what comes out of that, and 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 great things can come out of just taking a step away from that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's also a sort of a, a really interesting part of, I think the movie of just a guy who, um, whether he knows it or not, he has to do these things in order to get away from this book. You know, I, I have to say though, watching it again, when the book blows away at the end, it really was like a gut punch this time. I don't, <laughs> and I, I don't know if it was because, um, it's been a while since I've watched it, mm-hmm. um, and uh, obviously I was writing. I was a writer when I saw it, and whatever. But for some reason, this time I was just like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> like I don't know what I would do. Right. I and I think that um, his reaction is appropriate because I think the book had gotten away from him anyway. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah, no. The, to see that metaphor literalized is kind of is, perfect. You know what I mean? Just like well. Now it's now it's really gone. Like now it doesn't. I think you would either have to just kill yourself, or just like say it's over, and I'm just I got to move on to the next thing. Yeah. Um, The 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 punchline to that, at least at my screening, was Mm -hmm. the quiet. Well, do you did you do you have a copy? Do you have any copy? And all he says is, "Well, I have an alternate version of the first chapter," (laughs) and the audience wouldn't stop. They rolled right over the next two lines. (laughs) It was so great. Like, there's there's also uh, the line when she when uh, she says what was it about and he's like I don't know and he's like then why are we writing it because I couldn't stop yeah um, which isn't yeah. funny so much it's just really, really sad. sad yeah there's a lot of I mean there's a lot of lines in it that um, the scene that I that I always kind of get choked up I mean I'm a bit of a hopeless romantic so it is what it is but uh, the scene in the atrium. Um, with Francis McDormand when he's fallen on the ground and she wakes him up yeah. and she pulls out the gun and she puts it and she goes, pow. And he says, you got me. She says, I love you, Grady. It's just, there's something, first of all, they're both a, a love story about people that are over, let's just say 50, sure. something I like mean, that. He's supposed to be 50-ish, even though he's right. And she's probably 60. mid forties yeah. is my guess. She's not supposed to be much younger than he right. is. Definitely older than his wives. I and and able to have a child. So let's say she's 42 or sure. something along those lines. Yeah. Um, you don't see that very often. Two yeah. people that aren't, you know, uh, matinee idol looks and it, it just, that, that, that the love story that exists within this movie is a love story between people that we don't necessarily generally see falling in love. Sure. Um, also makes it special um, to see two people that uh, some people would have given up on love by that point, I think in some ways mm-hmm. I think, and it's, it's, it's debatable whether or not Grady's ever really loved any of his yeah, wives. You have no input into, like, you know, no insight or information about at all. Was. Really? Um, and in an interesting way, it almost feels like, uh, you know, Michael Douglas's career has been littered with, uh, many, a, a woman much younger than him, sure. uh, and, and any number of sexual escapades. So it, it felt right 
let this be sort of the evolution of that to a certain extent of a character that has that wants to put all of that of course he then married like Catherine Zeta Jones yeah. so like whatever but I think they were together at the time right? maybe because they were shooting she, they were together in 2003 when they were shooting Chicago here or he she was right. shooting Chicago here and yeah. I was actually at a restaurant once where they were in the next booth and uh-huh. I was just trying really really hard not to <laughs> Because sure. it's, that's sure. fascinating. Yeah. You want it's to a, hear he's, a, he's a bit of a weird dude. I assume. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah but they yeah. were, I think they were already an item, or they were about to be. But the, yeah, and, and well, you mentioned the episodes, which was something this time watching through the, his seizures or whatever they are, I was trying to track them and figure out if they mean anything. That's and interesting. It's the weirdest device because... It doesn't it's arbitrary. Have, it is completely <laughs> arbitrary. Yeah, it doesn't have a conventional payoff. Yeah, it's there to make you think there's a larger arc. Yeah, and it's I find that fascinating because yeah, it's like yeah. the opposite of the trope of you know coughing and blood in your hand. It just happens, yeah. and then it doesn't happen anymore. And I find that just wonderful that it wasn't excised yeah. uh, in the adaptation because it might feel too obvious, and that Shevin thought of it in the first place. Yeah. And it's clearly, like, if you want a reading that's dramatic or character yeah. built, it's his body telling him to stop writing this fucking book. Yeah. Because it, it's killing you. His body doesn't yeah. want to do it anymore, yeah. which I think is fascinating. Yeah. The idea of typing these pages out. Yeah. Um, but there is no, yeah, there's simply nothing. It just, it's there yeah. and it isn't. And the depiction yeah. is really interesting. Yeah. That, you know, it's the always light, from his yeah. perspective. We yeah. never see the seizure itself or whatever happens. Nope. <laughs> we have no idea how bad it is. Yeah. Like, there's never any froth or anything. There's no sense. Yeah. That it's, but it's medical. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. He just drifts away and comes back. Yeah. It is. It definitely is. Um, I mean, there's a... If you if you want to say the climax of the movie is probably that moment when he almost falls mm-hmm. over the over the banister onto Alan Tudyk, who's Alan another Tudyk. remarkable discovery. What the hell is Alan Tudyk? <laughs> He's fantastic at it, though. Yeah, the whole the whole scene where he asks about um, Errol Flynn rubbing <laughs> things on his dick is yeah. amazing. Um, yeah, I guess that's sort of on some level a bit of a forced climax, a little bit of mm-hmm. is he gonna is he gonna die? Is he gonna fall over this thing? Um, uh, you know, I would say if I have, you know, listen, we can nitpick, and I have mm. criticisms, I'm sure, but sure. my, if I have one beef with it, the ending feels a little pat. You know what I mean? That final scene of oh, him, just that he gets everything he wants. And... Yeah, and, and just I, I didn't really love. Um, they like clean up everything, and they clean him up, and they shave him, and they put him in front of a computer, and uh, you know. I, I just I didn't really necessarily love that so much. Mm. I like that he ends up with with Francis McDormand. Obviously, I love that they have the child together, and and uh, you know that's that's all fine and good. But I can't. I, I I'm a little at odds with myself. Watch. Listen, it's a it's a it's so fast. It's it's less than five minutes of screen time at the very end, and it gives people the happy ending that they that they want. I think there was a way to do it without uh, exercising so many visual things that yeah. we had become so accustomed to and, and quite frankly loved about it. Um, you know, I didn't love him in a new house with a clean office and I was just like, okay. Like, I get it, but I, I didn't need it. Yeah. I so, you know. You could, you could see it in... Yeah, I mean, uh, David Kep has this great maxim about going out on the potential for happiness instead mm-hmm. of happiness itself so it's much sure, more interesting sure, to stop sure. when you know things are going to be okay if they don't fuck it up mm-hmm. and still that's, have some faith in totally, your characters yeah I agree yeah I think in this I was thinking about it just uh, last night watching it again myself and yeah. realized that all you really need are the words on the screen you don't need to know anything other than yes. seeing him type it or even his voice mm-hmm. and then just the save image which is of course yeah. the dual metaphor of yeah. yes he's learned yes he's evolved sure. and also he's saving himself yeah. Uh, isn't he but it's still I think that I, I honestly think that if the scene was the scene and he was in his office at the house that mm-hmm. we've grown accustomed to um, everything would have been fine with me you put that computer sure. yeah, in yeah, that yeah. room in that crazy crazy room in that crazy house um, it's it's somewhere in between the two right you know and you see Francis McDormand pull up with the kid like you, you can have all of that right or you um, don't show her pull up and you just have the sound of the car pulling up and a knock on the door something to, to, sure, to sure, imply sure. but we don't yeah, I, mean, we I, I, I didn't mind her pulling up with the kid that was the that was less of a beef for me because mm-hmm. and more of just sort of the, the, the visual component of like now he's wearing a turtleneck and he's right. shaved and I was like oh Jesus like yeah. that, that to me was just like 
But again, these are nitpicky things because everything else worked up until that point. Well, I wonder if that isn't Hanson's background too as a commercial director, like not a yeah. director of commercials, but a yes, very commercial yes. filmmaker, sure. making sure the audience gets what they want. Because that seemed to be a real issue after <laughs> ironic. Confidential, right? Because it was yeah. such a. People didn't like the ambiguity. People yeah. were, you know, like, it's great, but why does it have to be so dark? Well, because it's an adaptation of a James Elroy novel. Yeah. Where have you been? Yeah. And then with Wonder Boys, he's doing something lighter and looser. Yes. And I just wonder if maybe he needed to put the bow on it, that it was his own thing. Maybe. I mean, I guess my feeling is, if you need that, you're watching the wrong movie. Yeah. Like, you've watched almost two hours of this shaggy dog, weird, you know, mer- you know kind of meandering thing a two minute scene with a just feels sort of like a different movie is sort of that that's it was a little jarring to me it mm-hmm. felt a little bit like meanwhile in a different movie now he's wearing a turtleneck and it just yeah. I just don't think you needed it but again like if if that was the thing that got Paramount off his back or whatever the case might be in order for him to be then sure fine I mean yeah. then it makes sense the the only recent example I can think of where this was really obvious is the uh, the F word or, or what if it was called in the states. Daniel Radcliffe's yeah, never saw it. Yeah. It's really sweet, and it ends on a perfect moment that uh, subsequently continues into five more minutes of movie. And it's just like <laughs> yeah. there's this beautiful end credit sequence. Uh, one of the, the Kazan's characters, an animator, and there's mm-hmm. these little interstitials that run through the entire film, and her characters return for this sort of photo album of what happened next. Sure. And then the movie just basically has a scene where that all happens too. Like you just watch the actors get back together at the airport later to talk about the thing that, that the, the sure. end credits will tell you. And I just found it, and everybody, um, Ilan Mastai and Michael Douse mm-hmm. and Radcliffe all said the same thing, which is that well, people just wanted it. It was the thing we really? needed to do. And it screened at TIFF without well, it. And that's the version I saw. It, yeah. And then afterwards, everybody's like, but then what happened? But then what happened? But then what happened? And they said, we'll do this. We'll give you this. Yeah. And it made them happy. But, you know, the movie doesn't need it. It's hard. I mean, I... Well, The Witch does it too. Because now it, yeah, it begs the question of, like, do you do what the audience thinks they want at the expense of the thing you made? Right. Um, and I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I, I think that it's... I see both sides of the coin. There are so many movies that I've seen that I love the ambiguity of how they end and, and, and doesn't bother me. Um, but then there are some films that I feel like I respect them for um, not pulling their punches and just sort of... I mean, like the end of La La Land, for instance, which, mm-hmm. um, you know, I loved it. I thought it was great. Me too. Yeah. And it has to end that it way. It kind of like has to end that it. way. I mean, there's a part of me that... I, I saw it twice. Um, and the first time I saw it, uh, I actually liked it more the second time, I think, than the first time. Um, I felt like it, it It kind of hit a bit of a, a lull in the center a little bit. Yeah, it does um, have a dip. It has people a just stop singing for a while. People stop singing, and, and uh, inevitably, Emma Stone's character is going through more than Ryan Gosling's character is going through. So there's a kind of an imbalance of of stakes, I guess, between the two of them. Um, but that, that final sequence, uh, is not just indicative of, of the old, old style movies that used to do this to a certain extent as well yeah. of the sort of the road not taken, but that last look between the two of them is a perfect way to end the movie of a sort of lovingly, you know, we had a great thing and that's fine and now we continue our lives on different paths and 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 uh i'm sure there's a lot of people that that don't love that ending that wish that emma stone and and ryan gosling ended up together and they ran off into the sunset and you kind of get that in a michelle gondry weird way yeah they find he that's what i love about it is that he finds that he gives you both chazelle finds a way to give you both yeah yeah, and tell you that one is preferable to the other which is even better yeah um i don't yeah, I, I mean, and you must deal with this sort of thing on a weekly basis because you are constantly upending relationships and changing things in ways that maybe audiences... I can't imagine what, say, Whedon goes through every time he kills somebody. Uh, yeah. I assume he just has to go hide for a while. <laughs> uh, well, it depends on if you allow the internet to bother you. Yeah, I suppose. Um, yeah. And I, I would say that, that I fall somewhere in the, in the middle camp um potentially my twitter feed proving otherwise um well that's it right we live in an era where your phone can tell you it hates you 
36 times a minute. Yeah, it uh, it's tough. It is really hard to to have, you know, real um, anger thrown your way um, about something that you love. I mean, I think that there's, you know, it, it's interesting because I often try to put myself into the headspace of, of myself when I was anywhere from 15 to, to 20. Right. When I was, you know in love with the television show and if I had the opportunity to tweet or speak to or converse with the creator or co-creator or whatever of that show um, and they did something that I didn't like would I have the quite frankly the, the balls to be able to say some of the things that these people say to me and the answer is no right. for me right. now that was a different world yeah we're old enough to remember a time when you you know fandom meant respect in a yeah. way that it doesn't anymore like no. just and a mutual respect like the sense yeah. that even if a film betrayed me yeah. you know my expectations if something disappointed me i didn't want someone to die for it it just seemed a bit yeah i mean i haven't had any death threats thankfully uh for the most part uh I, I, those weird exaggerated there are some very exaggerated people out there that have drawn their own conclusions about things that are not true mm-hmm. That are just quite frankly false, um, and you're never really going to convince them otherwise. Sure. Um, I would say that fandom has now sort of turned into a a palpable love and a palpable hate. Mm. There doesn't really tend to be much in the middle now, or at least on Twitter. Yeah, as far as I can, those are people who just as far as stuff. I can gauge. Yeah. Um, the quiet ones. And I understand why why they got upset about you know, Abby leaving the show. Um, and I understand that, that their misgivings about the way she was written off the show and whether or not that's, uh, did whether or not they felt as though the character deserved a different ending. Um, and I understand all of that. Uh, I really do. And I, and I think that they, uh, are justified in their opinions. Um, but they're their opinions. Yeah. And that's the really hard thing to sort of get across is that is, you know, I, I understand that you're frustrated about the show and, and, and I hope, and I don't say this just for my own self-serving reasons, but I hope that they can see, you know, I've, I've seen the, the premiere of season four and, and uh, that they can see the potential of the show still. You know, I think that what excited me about it was, and obviously other people as well, but um, the the runway that Ichabod Crane gives you as a character, uh, the idea of, of the stuff that can be played with. So that stuff is exciting. Mm-hmm. But to your, to your question, I think um, in terms of episodic television and, and the sort of the caveats that come with it in terms of um, the twists and turns, right? Yeah. And you have to keep people engaged and especially in broadcast, maybe more so than in cable. And the story uh, is going to want to evolve. That, that's the thing. It has to evolve is part of it too. Mm-hmm. I think that, that um, people are going to inevitably have their versions of the way things can go. Um, we're also in this unfortunate time right now, and I'm guilty of it uh, as much as maybe anybody of wanting to figure out where it's going to go before it goes there. Yeah. Which is just like, why? I mean, now, admittedly, I do it more times than not with things that I don't maybe care as much about, or I'm just sort of like, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't want to name drop shows that I don't care as much about, sure. but I will say that there are shows that I have, you know, that I'll be like, oh, well, okay, I'll go on Reddit and see what people have thought of on this oh, see, a little yeah. bit. Well, I mean, um, Westworld is famous for it right now. Like, it's a film where that is a show. timeline <laughs> theories were going back and forth on the yes. first episode yes. as to who things were and what right. things were. Now, I, I will say that that show... Um, the, I guess the problem, and I, I put that in quotation marks, but one of the things that comes with making a show like that now, in a sort of post-lost universe sure. now, is that... Uh, there's really only so many variations of this thing, right? So just enjoy where it's going. And, you know, Lost is a prime example of a show that you either enjoy the journey or you're obsessed with the destination. Right. And for me, I just thought the journey was great. I, I and, and I thought the ending was absolutely satisfying yeah, for was, me. I didn't, it didn't too. bother me. 
But I can understand a person who was given so many little things and then when those little things didn't add up to something that they felt was satisfying on a certain level, I can understand that being frustrating. Mm. Um, so I imagine on a show like Westworld where uh, you're, where HBO is basically begging people to go down the rabbit hole every week on this show. I mean, they want you on Reddit. They want you doing this stuff. Um, inevitably, you're going to be disappointed on a certain level because the things are just not going to be as revelatory as you think they're going to be. Right. Um, they will be, and you've already guessed them. Like That's or the that other too. thing, right? Yes, like, yes, if all yes. the gaming, to me, is if you're going to be validated, yeah. then great, but why, you know, like, that's five hours from now. Yeah. Like, you just never, you, you won't be satisfied mm-hmm. if you go in knowing. That's why, you know, for me, um, and not to, not to jarringly bring it back to Wonderboy, I was but, just about to, no, go right But ahead. I will say that I do feel like you know the movies that the movies and television shows that tend to speak to me the most um, are character based, and it's not to say that that Lost wasn't character based or that Westworld isn't character based because they are, sure. but they are also deeply mythology based. Yeah. I think that mythology is a a, 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 a witchy mistress. <laughs> you have to be very very careful with it. Uh, I think that if you start how can I put this? Mm. Mythologies are smoke and mirrors in a lot of ways. Well, they have to be. They have to be. Because if you can see them, right. they won't work. Right. Yeah. And I think that if you become focused on that, and if that is the thing that you care about, as a viewer, as a writer, it's very, very dangerous. I think that when everything is said and done, the human condition, why this character does what this character does, and that emotional investment in that character needs to be the thing. If that's not the thing that you're hooked on to and you're interested in the smoke monster, you're you're inevitably going to be disappointed because when you open that nesting doll, there's probably not much at the center of yeah. it. Well, I think the problem with all of it, and it goes back to Chris Carter with the X-Files, mm-hmm. realizing that that's what people wanted and then trying to write into it, and you see what happens. It just metastasized on him. It comes into several yeah. other different yeah. things, and he starts humping all these pieces together. With Lost, yeah, I don't care. I mean, I'm, in, I'm afraid of the smoke monster. I'm interested in it, sure. but I'm much more interested in who's not going to get eaten and what yes. that means to them. Sure. Uh, with um, with Wonder Boys, mm-hmm. what I was going to say is the ambiguity of figuring out who these people are is yeah. infinitely more interesting to me than what Grady's novel is about. Absolutely, absolutely, and that, I mean, and that's that's it's. I feel like in a lot of ways, uh, the leftovers is is a sort of a prime example of that too, oh, yeah, yeah. to a certain extent. Which is a you know, uh, I liked season one. I saw that you know it was bumpy. Season two was. Unbelievable! I haven't seen season two. Uh, you really should watch it. Oh, it's, good, it's, good, good. it's fantastic, and it, it and it's completely it has nothing to do with the book for all intents and purposes. It's its own animal, um, and it is um, a really, really delicate balance of the two things we're sort of talking about. There is obviously a event, a, a supernatural event, or whatever you want to call it, that that hovers over the entire show. Right. Um, but that it's about these characters dealing with that and, and what does that say about them and, and why are they making the choices they're making Excuse me, and the grief that comes with it uh, that's the stuff that's the goods for me um, you know it, it's you know my roommate she <laughs> struggles with the leftovers I think a little bit because of the fact that to her it, it can feel a little bit like look at the birdie when it comes to some of the um, I don't know if supernatural is even the right word, but the genre elements that exist right. within the show, um, and and I, I I think there's I think there's that's a valid thing to say. Um, for me, I'm holding on to the characters, so it doesn't it doesn't bother me as much. Mm-hmm. But I think that 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 is something that Wonder Boys does incredibly well, which is, um, as I mentioned earlier, these characters just feel so real. Like you just can't help but feel like. They just feel like people you want to be friends with. And for a lot of people, that's not enough. I read a lot of reviews about this movie that, that just felt like, who cares? Yeah, like a collective shrug almost. And a I was lot surprised of people to find that. those now. I did too. I, I found myself just going surprised a little bit. But I also wonder too, if it was released today, uh, 
Which I don't think it ever would be. I don't think this movie would get made today. That would be an HBO special. It would be like four Maybe. hours long. It would be a lot Maybe. more book. It would be a lot more typing. Potentially. Or, um, or three parts. One, like the first night, the second day, the third day. I, I, I yeah, sure. You formally sell it by breaking it up. But I, I don't guess, think, yeah, I don't think I don't it think would work it as a would get, I, I mean, and, and, and that's a little bit too of, of what I found interesting watching it again yesterday. Was that sort of... Um, the nostalgia of a movie like this even getting made. I think that... Um, it's, it's not that it, maybe I'm being a little bit hard. I I think that I don't think Paramount would make it today. Mm. Uh, A24 might, you know what I mean? And Aperna might, uh, I think that, you know, Fox Searchlight might, you know, distribute it. Yeah. With the right director. With the right director. I think that maybe it's still possible. Um, I know you haven't seen 20th Century Women yet, yeah. Um, but it does feel in a lot of ways like a movie like this. Uh, it 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 does have that kind of hangout quality. Um, you know, I think Mike Mills is a tremendous filmmaker, and uh, the movie has there 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 is kind of a little bit of Grady Trip in in Annette Bening's character, okay. um, and there, there's just so I I don't think we're completely. Uh, DOA on movies of this ilk um, and I think that great actors will always be taken will always be drawn towards great roles so in that respect I think you know that makes it kind of special too yeah I wonder if now it's a question of the package isn't enough like it, it's no longer sure. enough to, to sure. put yeah. these people together and make a 40 million dollar picture because what's sure. the release strategy yeah, yeah. straight to SVOD marketing yeah. yeah how do you make it work yeah um, but I would also love to be able to just take the DVD into a room and start whacking people with it until they watch it, which is probably how people are going to sell their. <laughs> yeah, there is. It's. It, I mean, I think that that's maybe the most the most disheartening thing about um, the business now, as as someone who's trying to sell things mm-hmm. and uh, and trying to come up with ideas that are are saleable, um, is that the package is now a thing. Yeah. Um, you know, literally and figuratively, uh, in terms of. What entities are you bringing to this? Um, how are you making this thing? Is this that four quadrant thing where you have to a little bit of that it? and a little bit of um, it used to be the idea is king and a great idea is a great idea and we're going to make it. Um, now it's a great idea with you know a future director and an actress or an actor and you know any number of other pieces of talent attached to it. So it, be, it becomes and I, I would also say too like you know uh, True Detective opened a lot of doors mm-hmm. and changed a lot change television um but it also you know Pizzolatto wrote two episodes of it two or three episodes of it before he sold it he had you know he had uh, Fukunaga attached to it he had Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey yeah. you walk into a room with those type of of you know entities yeah no shit it was bought to series and, and went to series right. um but and now those things didn't got far second season and everybody yeah. got mad at it. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, that's a whole other thing. But yeah, I mean, now it's just like you have to now they're like, well, this is the bar. So you better hit this bar. Right. That's 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 a tall order. No kidding. Yeah. Um, well, so this at least brings us to the final question of the show, which is sure. always the same, which is what of Wonder Boys have you borrowed or stolen or lifted or absorbed <laughs> into your creative DNA do you find yourself referencing it at any point or just think oh very it? much so uh, I, there's actually a project that I've been uh, that I'm trying to get legs underneath um, that's that's based on a book um, I don't want to say what book it is but uh, that it's based on a book um, that takes place at a college um, a boarding school uh, and Wonder Boys, Wonder Boys is very much a touchstone for me in terms of not just the the um, the faculty element of it, um, but just I feel like we've we've gotten away from shows about schools in a weird way. Mm-hmm. Um, well, unless it's like How to Get Away with Murder, right? That's that's sort of, right. Genre where where and which is which is a fantastic show, um, but the stakes are so jacked up, right? Uh, in a show like that. Um, that the the sort of um, academia of it is not really so much yeah. of a priority. Yeah, no, it's not about going yeah. to school. It's not about right, being, right. You know. uh, so I was, I'm, I'm intrigued by trying to find a way back to that. Okay. Um, which I think that this movie does really splendidly in terms of um, a really kind of loving um, that just that idea of the the warmth of education. I know that that's 
you know, can sound whatever, but I, I think that, you know, we spend, we spend a lot, a, lot, a large portion of our adolescence going to school and growing as a person. And, and I think that uh, we forget how sort of comforting that is. And I think that's sort of one of the things that I try to hopefully convey in some of the stuff that I'm writing, that sort of the, the comfort of, um, I guess camaraderie, I guess, is a big one too. They all feel like they're friendly and friends with each other. And, and that moment we talked, sort of that idea of like sitting down and wanting to hang out with these people, that's always something that I hold at a very, very high esteem in terms of my writing. I want people to want to hang out with these people. Um, well, I mean, for television, you're literally inviting yeah. them into your home. That's kind of what you want for yes, any kind of yes. appeal, right? Like, yeah, to for be sure. Relatable, but also interesting. Yeah. Absolutely. I think. I think. I mean, but also to be very careful too, because I think that, like, I think the industry holds likability uh, as as a sometimes takes that too far. Sometimes that mm-hmm. idea of like uh, people can't be you you can't question anything about that. This person has to be perfect, right? Um, we can't make them unlikable. And you're like, well, I mean, they can be likable and complicated too. Like that, that, that's okay. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be, but you know, yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, Jesus, I just think about all my favorite characters are, if not short tempered, they're at least <laughs> sure, eccentric. Sure, you know, sure. That's what you, that's yeah. who wants to hang out with people who are perfect. Uh, apparently broadcast television Studio audiences. executives, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I think, but you know, the, the flip side to that is that we've had antiheroes for a very long time too. Sure. Um, you know, uh, I think that people want to watch Tony Soprano on a television show. I don't think they want to spend any time with Tony Soprano. Yeah. I could be wrong. I mean, do you want to be in a room with Tony Soprano? I, I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> what if he's teaching criminology at a boarding school? Oh, the, there you go. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. So, yeah. But yeah, I think I think that uh, um, in terms of other things that I that I tried to take away from Wonder Boys, um, I think it's very it's wry sense of humor. Um, I, you know, I, I'm a pretty sarcastic person, so I think that there's definitely, uh, I, I try to, there's some just, there's some tremendous jokes in, in the movie, um, that are not, um, it's, it's like you said, it's, it's kind of got farcical elements to it, but it never, it never goes, it knows it's smart, it knows it's clever, it knows it's witty, and it knows it's making a joke, but it's more of with a wink and a nod than it is with a swinging for the fences a yeah. belly laugh which is that's kind of my that's certainly my wheelhouse yeah it's they're not making movies like that these days and i think we i definitely would like to see more of them yeah i feel like we're we're in a, we're in a weird place right now my thanks to philip iskov who sleepy hollow rolls into its fourth season on fox this friday january 6th at 9 p.m check it out see what's next and keep an eye on his imdb page for the other stuff he has brewing it sounded pretty interesting off mic you can find Phil on Twitter at Philip Iscove, all one word, and you can find Wonder Boys on DVD only from Paramount Home Entertainment, but it's available for sale and rental in HD on iTunes and Google Play. I keep hoping Criterion will get behind a Blu-ray release, but with Hansen's death late last year, that seems unlikely. Let's try writing some letters. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be very kind of you. For 2017, I've resolved to stop doing the quote thing at the end of the show because people found it confusing. So I'll just say Happy New Year again, and thanks for listening.